page in any order, and if yours isn't asked, forgive me. If you want to blame anyone, blame me, um, because we have, actually I'm seeing that we have 50 questions here. Uh, and in a half an hour, that gives us about 30 seconds per question. <laughs> so let me just go through and grab the first men. Uh, okay, and what we're going to do as quickly as possible, we want somebody to jump on it if it doesn't have a name, all right? Okay, Scott, that's you. Okay, it, always Scott first? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> okay. Um, what can parishes do to encourage parents to take the role of primary catechist of their children instead of relying on the parish to do all the work? Oh, was the question that what, what can we do to get parents to catechize and not Take simply delegate it? Yeah, I mean, the catechism is clear and the popes for the last three or four decades have said over and over again that the parents are the primary evangelizers of the children, that the family is a domestic church. Unfortunately, I think we know that the new evangelization is defined precisely by the need to re-evangelize those who have been secularized and so often that is the parents of young people. So sometimes we can reach young people through their parents, other times we end up having to reach the parents through the young people. And so if they're practicing the faith, get them to really exercise that role. But if they're not, I find that more often than not you have to really reach the parents by allowing them to watch the grace of conversion take hold in the lives of their, of their own kids. But the, the, the primary point I think is made, and that is the parents are the primary evangelizers and thus also the catechists. What apologetic resources would you suggest for reaching teenagers? No joke, but YouTube is a big one. There are a lot of excellent videos that, keeping in mind the short attention span that many young people have nowadays, the YouTube videos that are five to 10 minutes long and teach on how to respond to atheism, how to, uh, how to, how to respond to the typical challenges, whether they're from a secular standpoint or a religious standpoint. These videos are now proliferating widely on YouTube. They're free, they're quick, the kids are already on YouTube, that would be a good place that I would recommend. We've used those successfully with our own children and showing them, hey, let's watch this uh, five-minute video on how to respond to atheism, for example. It's a good little inoculation booster shot, and the kids are already in tune with it, so it's not as though you have to get them to read a book or get them to sit down and look at something longer. One other good resource I would throw out there uh, especially with young children, going back to the theme, domestic church, which I think is essential. We've got to talk about it. We've got to help people to live it practically, that the husband is the natural priest representing Christ, that the mother is the natural heart of the home, and that you take the opportunities, especially at family meals, to turn the television off, to let them know that you love them, and talk to them, that lines of communication are constantly opened up, particularly by bringing back again that sense of the family meal as a sacred time where you hear what they're doing, what's going on in their life, and they get a deep sense that you care, you're concerned, and that you love them. I want to build on what Tim just said and also Pat. 
and really what was there in the very first question, um, Steve Wood, a good friend of mine who were, we were classmates together at Gordon-Conwell with Marcus, he heads up St. Joseph Covenant Keepers and recently he published the results of a study that was sponsored by the Southern Baptist Convention on the role of fathers in families. And I forget the entire breakdown of statistical conclusions, but one of them was that if the child is the first to experience the grace of conversion in the family, there's a 3.7% probability that the rest of the family will follow. If the mother experiences the grace of conversion for the first time and expresses that, sharing it with the family, it's roughly 16% chance that the rest of the family will follow. But if the father is the first to experience the grace of conversion and shares that, it's roughly 93% probability that the rest of the family will follow. And then in addition to that, they also showed statistically that if the husband, the father, is devout and goes to church regularly, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the children will be going to church for the rest of their lives, regardless of how devout the mom is or if she practices at all. That's how paramount the role of the paternal priestly rule is, and especially if it's exercised in a non-anxious way. I once heard somebody define fatherhood as non-anxious leadership. We get the leadership part, but we so are often exercising it with anxiety, insecurity, defensiveness. But I think turning the TV off, saying grace, maybe the family rosary, that sort of thing. To the extent that our Lord has enabled me to do that, and I've seen that now with our 12 grandkids and our three oldest kids, and every night they gather their kids like I gathered mine and just place their hands over their heads and just say, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever to we're in heaven together. We give hugs. We've done that for 30 years. And that's one small thing that we do, but there are a lot of other things that especially the men can do because if the new evangelization is gonna succeed, we can see statistically how it's gonna depend upon the fathers. And if fathers fail, there's no chance the new evangelization will succeed. Great, thank you. Thank you, Scott. Here's a quick one for you, Dr. Matava. Is there a written text of your presentation available? If not, can it be made available? Sure, if you email me, um, you can find my email address on the college website. I'd be happy to give that to you. Yeah. Thank you, Doctor. All right, do you consider Laudato Si an instrument of the new evangelization, or is it more of an exhortation than an encyclical? It is much more than an exhortation. It shows that Pope Francis, and with him therefore the church, is concerned about God's creation. That the Pope is not just asking Catholics to come to confession, come to mass, but asking all human beings to respect what God has created, to regard ourselves as stewards in the vineyard of the Lord, and to regard ourselves as responsible to our fellow citizens and the future citizens who will come after us. That is gospel. It is not the whole gospel. 
but it is very much a part of it. So it isn't just exhortation. An encyclical is a document of teaching of a rather high value in the church. So it is a major document of teach, a, mo, a major, a document of teaching at a major, on a major subject. We are not generally accustomed to encyclicals on environment. That is true, but we have it. <laughs> You know, I would just add to that, um, thank you so much, Your Eminence, that um, maybe it's just because I'm such a Johnny One Note, but I believe, my perspective whenever I read anything by our Holy Father, is that at the core of it, it's about evangelization. I believe everything our Holy Father is teaching is about reaching in an urgent way the souls of men and women around the world. And so whether it's about the environment or whatever he's writing about, at the core, he wants to reach those people for Jesus Christ in the church. That's the core. So it isn't, in my mind, really about ecology, though he talks about it. At the core is reaching people who think that all there is is saving the world. That's all that's important. He wants to dialogue with those folks to bring them to Jesus Christ. And I believe that this particular document gives us a foundation to reach out to those people in our lives. Otherwise, they may not listen to us. But now we have something that we can share together to reach out. In fact, um, I have another one that's kind of uh, connected with some of the things that the Pope says. This question is, it seems the Pope has significant issues with capitalism, as his remarks continually criticize this. One can conclude from this, he would support more of a socialist society. Is he being misrepresented in the mainstream media? I'll tackle that a little bit first, and I'll, I'll, let, I'll let my elders and betters come after me. But um, Can you give us some easy questions, please? Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I have one here. Was, I, I think was Barbie a Catholic? Yeah, it was Barbie a Catholic. There you go. No, but no, to, to some extent, when, when we talk about <laughs> capitalism, right, and, and the Pope having issues with capitalism, right, um, what we have to distinguish is capitalism as some system of, of ideas from the global economy the way it functions today. Um, the Pope's position, uh, Pope Francis's position, it's the same as the position of Pope Benedict, of Pope John Paul II, of Pope Paul VI, that the global economy in the way that it functions nowadays in many ways involves fundamental injustice. This is true. Um, National Geographic uh, recently did a, a very, very interesting kind of photographic special on, on the issue of sweatshops and landfills in the third world. And they were focusing specifically on the manufacturing of, of things like T-shirts, uh, T-shirts that we buy for very, very cheap, uh, especially teenagers, where they buy massive numbers of T-shirts. Two weeks later, they throw them out. And what most people don't realize is that not only were they made by slave labor uh, in some sweatshop somewhere, and in, in a country that you might not expect, in a country that might have a decent, a halfway decent GDP or a growing economy, um, but not only were they made by slave labor, but when you donate it to Goodwill, it ends up back on a container, it ends up going back to the third world, and it ends up in a third world landfill, right? And, and this is fundamentally unjust, right? And the people that, that suffer from this are human beings, right? It's not the environment as, as some kind of inanimate entity that suffers. It's human beings that suffer from, from these economic injustices. And there's a fundamental human call 
to be conscious about the role that we play in the global economy. And, and that's what Pope Francis is talking about here, I think. Yeah. I think fundamentally what he's Hit the button. There. there. I think fundamentally what we're talking about in the encyclical and in this, a lot of times he's had an experience down in Latin America of I think we would call crony capitalism, which is highly corrupt and self-serving. But what he's trying to do, just like John Paul and like Benedict, he's trying to put the human person at the center of the economy. It's, it's not about systems, it's about people. And anything that would degrade people or that is divorced from the moral law or is not concerned really with human dignity needs to be corrected or modified. He's definitely not a socialist. He's not preaching socialism. But there's a dominant ethos right now that puts a primacy, I think, upon profit to the point oftentimes of degradation of humanity and not caring <coughs> about the human person. For example, there was one article I just read about down in Argentina one of the major rivers in Argentina, there's a spot densely populated, but they've located all of these chemical plants right along this river, and it has been grotesquely, grotesquely polluted. The people in that area have trouble getting drinking water. That's where he speaks about a right to drinking water, and it's absolutely disgusting that the Argentine government's gonna send like $100 million to try to clean it up, but they said, we can't start this for 20 years. And in the meantime, you have people having these chemicals, and again, the chemicals are all being produced there, and they're being sending out to other parts of the world, making lots of money, and the people right there are living in filth. That's wrong. That's not anti-capitalism. That's not being pro-socialist. That's being pro the human person, like our Lord would be. Building on that, I would add that... The church's social doctrine is often described as the church's best kept secret, but it still is a well-kept secret. I would say that in my own experience, it was really the first area of conversion for me. I had gone to Grove City College as a Calvinist and studied Austrian economics, and so for four years I was immersed in von Mises and Hayek and, 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 and all the others too. Um, and it just seemed to fit with the, the sort of theological individualism that comes from our tradition as reformed evangelicals. Going deeper into the notion of covenant, finding out that it was really familistic in ancient Israel, I then stumbled upon Rerum Novarum and Quadragesima Anno, documents that Mises called pseudo-socialism. And I realized that these are not socialistic in any way, but they're also not capitalistic. I always thought there were two options, individualism on the one hand and collectivism on the other, except in scripture where the covenant pointed to a kind of familism. That's exactly what I found in Rerum Novarum, in Quadragesimano. It's not just solidarity, subsidiary, family wage. It really is a family-centered vision so that civilization passes by way of the family and it's more than the atomistic or nuclear family. It's a vision of society as a kind of extended family and it seems to me that that integration gives us a vision that not only has to be recovered and communicated to a new generation, but lived out practically. I remember when I was in the process of rereading Rerum Novarum, Quadragesimo, as well as Centissimus Annos, I went to a doctoral seminar before I became a Catholic, and there was a, a Jesuit priest, theologian of world renown, he also taught in the law school. And as I was sitting there listening to him lecture, he suddenly just took a tangent. You could tell it was off script. He just said, you know, all of this conversation about the, the public square and the naked public square, we were reading Richard John Newhouse at the time. 
He said, if Catholics who are married just simply lived the fullness of the sacrament of matrimony for 40 years, the result would be a Christian society. But I digress. And then he went back to the lecture, but I didn't. All I did was sit there thinking, you know what? That is a profound and penetrating insight into how it could work. Thank you. Thank you. All right. When converts describe their conversion, they always give credit to grace and the mercy of God. When we look at non-Christians who have not chosen the church, we say it's their choice and their will. Which is it? <laughs> I'm that's just a, a TV talk show host. <laughs> that, that's a good question. It's a hard one to answer well in a short time. Um, here's what I would say. Um, it goes back to how we as Catholics, as Christians, understand evil. Evil and good are not two different things kind of on the same level. Evil is a privation. It's a lack of what's good. So it's a different kind of reality altogether, right? When you're applying that to human actions, to choices, good choices are not just a different kind of choice on the same level as a bad choice. A good choice is more than a bad choice. A bad choice is like a, a, an action with a big hole in it, a big cavity in it, right? Um, so that when we act well, we can ascribe that to God's grace. And it's not an either or. I think that's an important point. That's, it's so intuitive to make the mistake of thinking it's either God or it's us, or it's either God or it's creation. The whole doctrine of creation that's at the heart of our faith um, is, is not a zero-sum game between God and the world. So when we act, God is at work acting in and through us. So when we make a good choice, we can say, yes, it's God's grace too. But we can't say that if the choice is bad. Um, God doesn't create evil. Evil's a lack of what ought to be there. So there's an asymmetry, is what I would say, between a good choice and a bad choice that allows us to ascribe our good choices to God's agency at work in us, um, which is not an avenue we can take when it comes to our sins, or including a rejection of truth. If we see something to be true and um, reject it, well, that's a, that's a moral fault. This is a privation in that action. The interplay between grace and human free will and response is not without some mystery for us. We cannot pretend that we understand all that happens between God's offer of help to us, actual grace, and our response, not even our personal response, not to talk of that of others. Only God can finally judge that. That may be why Christ said, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Thank you. Uh, for instance, a teacher asked boys in the class, give example of a good act you have done. One boy said, I gave two slaps to another boy on the cheek. The teacher said, that is not a good act. The boy said, it is. Because at first, I meant to give him three slaps. <laughs> <laughs> then I reduced it to two. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it reminds me of Pat and I were talking this morning about whether that donut had calories. 
And I said, well, it's relative. It's got much less than a donut this size, so it's fine. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, here we go. If being canonized does not being, being killed in the battle of Front Royal by a cannonball, does being canonized affirm that someone went straight to heaven? Or could they have gone through purgatory before beatification or canonization? We cannot tell whether a particular person went to purgatory before heaven. God has not made us members of his advisory council. <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what, all, all that the church does is this. When a person dies and has a reputation of having Having been very holy, the local bishop, if he thinks there is some prima facie case in favor, they set up a tribunal. The first stage is, did this person practice virtues to heroic degree? If it goes through the diocesan tribunal, then it comes to the Roman tribunal, and it goes through the theologians, if they are in favor, then the cardinals and bishops who are members of the Congregation for Beatification and Canonization. If it goes majority again, then it is passed on to the Pope. If he approves, next requirement, miracle. Ask God for a miracle by intercession of this person. When that happens and goes through those two stages again, diocesan and Roman, then the Pope approves, and then it is beatification, blessed. To canonize, what is required is one more miracle that goes through the stages again. But at no stage does any Pope or Bishop try to suggest that they know whether the person went to purgatory first before going to heaven. We never try to put our foot into that sacred area. God knows. And it is not necessary for us to speculate on that point. The main thing is, if God has worked a miracle by intercession of this person, then God has put his seal of approval on it and the person is canonized as a model of good Christian life, which does not mean that the person was always holy in the person's life. Even St. Peter denied Christ three times. The very evening he was made bishop. And St. Paul wasn't always uh, nice. He was <laughs> catching Christians, getting them in prison. But then he responded, and it isn't even that you wouldn't get angry sometimes, even the greatest saints. But what is required is practice of the virtues to heroic degree for a protracted length of time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. 
discuss the perpetual virginity. Why is the teaching necessary and why is it important? Why is it important? Why don't I first define it, but not in any formal way? Um, the perpetual virginity doctrine of the faith is that Mary remained a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. So her, her physical integrity and her virginal integrity as a woman was maintained consistently. That very often needs to be specified up front so that people understand what you're referring to because some people will think that it refers only to children either being conceived or not conceived after the birth of Jesus. And the, uh, the section in particular that tends to cause problems, I think, uh, conceptually is in part two. In her delivery of Jesus, she yet remained a virgin. And that was the subject of speculation in uh, centuries gone by, wondering how can this be? And one of the analogies I'll mention before I turn the mic over to my esteemed colleagues is that the, uh, the analogy of a ray of light passing through the pane of glass without changing or injuring the glass was one analogy that some of the earlier theologians used to try to help people understand that this miracle of Mary's perpetual virginity was a, a, a wonderful, beautiful thing. It wasn't simply a, a function or a, uh, a happenstance of her being the mother of Jesus. With regard to Protestant folk who object to this doctrine on the basis of some passages that seem to suggest that Mary did have other children, one of the things that uh, I know my, my colleagues have dealt with many times before is the interesting fact that the New Testament actually is silent on this point and does not say, it does not assert either that Mary had other children or that Mary did not have other children. So when we approach from an apologetic standpoint, when we approach this topic, this is one of those areas where the implicit evidence overwhelmingly <coughs> points to Mary's, and I'm talking the implicit evidence in scripture, points overwhelmingly to Mary's perpetual virginity, and that doesn't even take into account the issue of apostolic tradition, which explicitly states this. And it's worth noting for those who have this discussion with evangelical Protestants, for example, that two key figures in the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin, were both stalwart defenders of Mary's perpetual virginity and rejected the very arguments that many Protestants use today from scripture to try to, uh, to appeal to the idea that Mary had other children. That's a, a, a very interesting technique to use is to point out that even Calvin and Luther, who had no love for the Catholic Church, defended this doctrine. I found that that will very often get people to stop and think, uh, or rethink their position on this issue. Yeah. I can just add to that. I would say, you know, an interesting point on the end there is that the reformers themselves, as far as I can tell, weren't particularly anti-Marian, um, but rather it's their view of the relation be between scripture and tradition, their views on authority, which really set up the conditions for later generations to have problems with the Catholic doctrines on the Blessed Virgin. I think that's an important point to, to, to make. Um, related to this too, and I think probably Dr. Hahn could speak to this more than, than I could, but there's a certain biblical case that can be made for Mary's perpetual virginity, especially on the basis of Old Testament types, the Ark of the Covenant, um, the gate shall remain shut, and right, all the, these ideas in the Old Testament which prefigure um, 
the role of the Blessed Virgin. I want to I agree with you and, uh, and emphasize everything you said as I would agree with that. My, uh, the, the proviso is that in dealing with explicit versus implicit, an explicit statement would be something like Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. An implicit statement would be such as the typological arguments that you're mentioning. So I just don't want to give anyone the impression that we can't make a very robust case in favor of Mary's perpetual virginity. We certainly do. In fact, Scott, uh, you have a lengthy section in Hail Holy Queen that does exactly that. But it's the difference between explicit and implicit that's important, especially when you're doing apologetics, so that you don't wind up putting too much weight on something that's not explicit, if you follow my meaning. Now, and certainly, if we wanted to make the case from the Christianity of, of history, <clears throat> it is a fact. The perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary is absolutely insisted upon explicitly in the liturgical and patristic traditions of Christianity, both East and West. All the most ancient liturgical and patristic traditions emphasize Mary the Ever-Virgin, right? It's over and over and over again, Mary the Ever-Virgin. Uh, the miraculous nature of the birth of Christ at Christmas, explicitly talked about in all the Eastern liturgies. It's not some kind of Roman Catholic doctrine that was invented in Rome by Romish people or something like that. It's a, it, it goes back in, into the very mists of time and into the very origins of, of Christianity. Uh, and so the, the burden of proof would rest with anyone who wanted to remove that doctrine from Christianity. It, it's one of the oldest um, historical dogmas, and it's connected theologically with who Mary is, with what Mary is, with who and what Jesus is. Yeah. I think it's also important to recognize that this teaching does not in any way imply that marital sexuality is something sinful. You yeah. know, it comes from the same church that has elevated matrimony to the level of a sacrament. And so those who deny it ironically find themselves in a position where their view of marriage and sexual intimacy within the marital covenant doesn't really rise to the level of sanctity that we have in our tradition. I think if you also look at what St. Jerome writes to Helvidius in the fourth century, it's somewhat startling for Jerome to have to deal with something that is so universal, this belief. Uh, Jerome could always be harsh, <laughs> but he was especially hard on Helvidius precisely because Helvidius was calling into question that which every Christian in all times had affirmed, and that is the perpetual virginity. Among other things, too, <coughs> we have a passage in Luke 134, I think we all know, and that is when Our Lady asks the archangel Gabriel, how can this be, for I know not a man? Well, it isn't because she was so young that she hadn't been taught the facts of life. I think the best way to exegete this, as John Paul and others have done, is to show that, yes, there is an implicit vow of virginity, not just a temporary, but a kind of permanent vow. And if you look into the Old Testament traditions of this in terms of Leviticus 27, as well as the story of Jephthah's daughter in the book of Judges, and, and also some Qumran sources, too, that Dr. Brand Petrie has underscored, you'll see that there really is a solid ground for seeing that women did this sort of thing, and that this is echoed in the tradition. I think at the end of the day, though, we have to say that the church believes it because it's true. Just as Mary was not assumed into heaven in 1950, so <laughs> the church defines dogmas because they're not just true, they're real. And when we contemplate them, we discover they're also beautiful. Thank you, Scott. First of all, there's so many good questions here, we can't get to them. We're pushing time. I'd like to do two more questions for the end because they're good ones. I, they all were good ones. but. 
If, if it is true what Newman said, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant, then why do you think more learned Protestant leaders and theologians, assuming they do study the history of Christianity, don't see the truth of Catholicism and convert? Could I jump on that real quick? Um, it, this is actually one of the most fascinating things in Newman's essay on the development of doctrine. Uh, he makes the point, actually, that, that Protestant scholars have abandoned the study of ecclesiastical history in 19th century England. He's the only ecclesiastical historian uh, that the English-speaking world produced that Newman can think of was the infidel Gibbon. Right. He, he says, you know, Protestant English uh, scholars deliberately avoid ecclesiastical history precisely because it's embarrassing for them. And this becomes a major polemical uh, kind of scoring thing for uh, Newman can score again and again and again on this. Um, now, when, you know, when it comes to history, it, it is it is fascinating today how the, the modern historical profession um, you know, has been broken down in such a way that. Uh, certainly learned Protestants can approach history in, in very, very specialized ways that attempt to um, justify Protestant arguments against Catholicism. But ultimately, it, it, it is one of the most fascinating things. When you're dealing with it at the level of popular apologetics, I've never, ever found a popular Protestant apologetic that, that attempted to invoke history. I, I, I've never found one that didn't ultimately cr either cr totally crumble or reduce to some just fantasy notion of church history. Right, w you know, w when, when you look at the history of the church, the history of the church is Catholic. And there, there just is no way to avoid that, that there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Right, it, it, it's, the, it's the massive elephant in the room when you're dealing with apologetics with Protestants. You know, Scott, I remember when we were in seminary, we read La Tourette. Now, it's been years since I remember, but for example, there is a historian that uses the grid of missions out of which to re look at all of history. And by looking at missions, you can avoid hierarchy and ecclesiology and all the others. So again, often our separate brethren have a grid through which they always look when they look at history. And we need to pray for them because of the, the grids they bring. Yeah, I, I remember working through Kenneth Scott Latteret in church history and wondering why it was being done that way, but it was also kind of opening the back door to a kind of Catholic-friendly approach. I think it's significant, though, that Newman does not say that to go, into to go deep into history is to become Catholic. To go deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. But, you know, as Gibbon represents, you have the option of atheism or of a radically secularized historiography. You know, it isn't just historical proof that makes Catholics. It really is what flesh and blood has not revealed, but it is our Father in heaven. It is a supernatural grace that opens up the mysteries of faith that have been revealed to us in history, but it really does require the gift of faith, and that kind of supernatural grace is indispensable. So as important as historical study is, especially in dispelling people of, of a Protestant bias, we, don't, we want to disabuse ourselves of the idea that just more historical argumentation is all you really need. One last question. There's so many good ones, but one last. It seems that because of its moral decay that our society and church is headed towards dark times. Based on past history, what do you see is our way out of this wilderness? I will just say the, that Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. I think that's the path through and out of it ultimately for every generation, remaining faithful to Jesus and come what may, you get through it because you're close to Jesus even if it means for some martyrdom. 
Uh, I'll leave it to the others to talk about the practical aspects of it, but I think ultimately it's, for all of us it's going to be stay close to Jesus and everything's going to be okay for those who stay close to him. Like the, the, the fishing boat that seemed to be about to sink on the Lake of Galilee during the storm, Jesus seemed to be asleep. Very often it can seem like Jesus is asleep now. And he has the same words to us that he said to the apostles, why did you doubt? I would just say again, Lumen Fide, the light of faith. It may get darker, but we all know the greater the darkness, the more the light shines. And people can try to redefine and pretend human nature is not what it is, and it's just plastic and malleable, and we can be whatever we want. But these things are written on the human heart. And there may be a momentary glitch here where the Supreme Court may say something, or someone else may take a vote and say something, and we're going to define that water is beer, but it's not. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, wine, too, that's fine, all under God's good earth. But the whole idea is, as the, as the darkness comes, the light will shine, and these things are written on the human heart. And I think if we are faithful as a church, and we live this out, they're going to see joy, there's going to see, they're going to see transformation, they're going to see life, and people want that. People will want that. This is a temporary glitch. I don't care how dark it gets. Eventually, truth is going to win out, and the light of Christ is the way to do it. Thank you. And in every age, there are good people, some not so good, some not so bad, and we don't know. And there is a tendency for people to say, our age is not a good one. In the past, things were much better. God knows best. And if you think there isn't enough love of God, light a candle. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can just... Uh... I can just add a couple of points building on that. Remember, hope is a theological virtue, right? Um, trust in God's providence. How do we stay close to Christ? His word and sacrament where we encounter him, living out the liturgy in our lives. Um, and I think building on Dr. O'Donnell's point this, that it's very much the forefront of our minds, um, the things that are going wrong, the ways in which, especially the entertainment media, the news media, um, is shaping our kind of collective consciousness by by playing on our concupiscence, by playing on our fallenness. And that's a very effective tactic because we're broken and wounded by original sin. I mean, this is, I'm convinced how the advertising industry works, right? Um, but we have nature on our side, right? So if, if everyone has concupiscence and that makes a certain tactic effective, still stronger is the fact that we have what God created um, that we can appeal to, all right? The, the human person is made for a good end and we can never efface that. And so if we can appeal to that, um, appeal to our nature and appeal to what we're attracted to. I think that there's hope there. Please thank our illustrious panel. I'm gonna say and I would say, just remember that most of them came a long way to give to you. So pray for them. Tell God how much you appreciate their work and their sacrifice and what they have given in their own lives and for you. And also, before we come to an end, I think Marcus Grote has done a phenomenal job emceeing today, and we owe him a great debt of gratitude. We'd like to thank you, Marcus, for a job well done. You may
make it easier. Audiences make it easier when you smile. So thank you. I hope this has been a wonderful conference for you, strengthening you, encouraging you. Go from here in the name of Christ. Pray for Christendom College. Mark your calendar with all the good options they have for you to grow in Christ so you can go forth to that special person in your life to be witness to Jesus and his church. God bless you. See you later. Oh, and uh, I'll be out signing books if, if you want to empty my table. Marcus, Marcus, do you want final blessing from the Cardinal, maybe? Oh, yes, please, stop. Just stop, 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 stop. Okay. We would like to invite His Eminence to give us a final blessing, please. We thank you, Lord, for having brought us together. We beg you, bless those who prepared for this entire conference. All the participants, all those who spoke, who contributed in any way. Be with us always. Accompany us as we go home. May the name of the Lord be blessed now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend on you and remain with you forever. Amen.